So Money, episode 1534, Firuze Duma, author of the New York Times bestseller, Funny in Farsi. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. It's called Surviving fame within the Iranian community. That is a whole nother podcast. And by fame, I mean, I'm not that famous, but I mean, even just being known publicly a little bit. Um, no, the haters are like coming out of the woodwork all the time. And I was shocked because when I wrote Funny and Farsi, I just thought there's nothing in this book that anybody can possibly be offended by. But it turns out that my existence can be offending. This was news to me because people, I mean, I would get emails and they say, why are you wasting your time with stupid stories that aren't even funny? You should be talking about politics. Welcome to So Money, everybody. Happy Monday. Today, I have the honor of welcoming a great luminary whose words have touched the hearts of millions. I first discovered Firuze Duma when I was a young 20-something, growing up never quite feeling like it was quote-unquote cool to be Iranian. And, you know, I love my heritage, but it sometimes did create barriers for me when I was trying to make friends, feel connected to the American way. And then at 23 years old, I read Funny in Farsi, and this book became a smash hit. It is a compelling memoir, a heartwarming, humorous account of Firuz's Iranian family's journey from Iran to the United States. I found the book emotional. It beautifully explored the complexities of identity and it's funny, as the title promises, uh, which means it is also really powerful. It has stayed in my brain for 20 years. This is 20th anniversary since Firuze wrote this book. And today I have the honor of having her on the show. Uh, we are going to talk about her journey. We're going to unravel the layers of her journey. We're going to explore the joys and challenges of embracing a multicultural identity. So even if you're not Iranian or know about the Iranian experience, but you have felt othered as you were growing up and perhaps still, you have to listen to this show. Here's Firuze Duma. Firuze Duma, welcome to So Money. Thank you. 20 years in the making. Uh, I first needed to get a podcast, uh, got that, check, uh, read your book, check, and have been a fan for two decades. You have no idea how influential you have been and so often your words in my mind as I am, you know, uh, putting one foot in front of the other as a grown adult woman in this country, an Iranian American woman in this country. Thank you so much. And congratulations on your 20th anniversary of Funny in Farsi. Thank you. Thank you so much for all your kind words. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very touched. Thank you. It is, it is not hyperbole. I'm not exaggerating here. It, your book for, for so many, for millions of people um, was ugh, such a, it was a permission to be Iranian finally in this country and to be proud of that and to find the humor in that and to celebrate that. I was hearing you talk about sort of the, the genesis of this book I want to get into a little bit of that even more. Like you were 36 years old when you published it. Um, you had never written professionally before, but what turned you to writing this, I, I was understanding that it was 9-11. So maybe we could start there a little bit with just sort of what was the fuel for this? You wanted to 
write your story for your children and ended up being the story for so many people. But what was it about that time that drew you to this project? So I started writing when I was 36 years old. I'd never, ever written creatively before. I mean, I'd written papers in college, but nothing creative. And I started writing simply because I wanted my kids. I had two kids at the time. I have three now, but I just wanted them to know my stories. I had grown up in America and I'd never, ever seen my story on TV or in a movie or in a book anywhere. And I just thought if my, if I want my kids to know what my life was like, I'm going to have to write them, write these stories. So I joined a writer's group when I was 36 years old and, um, I wasn't planning on publishing my stories, but 9-11 uh, is what changed my mind. And it was a friend who actually pointed out to me and said, you really should try to get these stories published. And um, it took me almost a year to find an agent because agents kept telling me humor and Iran don't go together. There's no audience for that. And I was told, you know, you can write about oppression. Oppression is in. Oppression is hot. Mm-hmm. And I said, well... I, first of all, I wasn't oppressed. I would say my dad ruined that literary career of mine, but uh, <laughs> by not oppressing me. But, but more importantly, I wanted to put my stories out in the world, which were, which are about joy. That, that's what I wanted my legacy to be. I did not want to write another sad story for people to read. I wanted to write a story that would make people want to go next door and meet their Iranian neighbor. As you write, it is through humor that we can soften some of the worst blows that life delivers. How do you, Firuza, incorporate the humor in your storytelling so that, you know, you're tackling two things. You're tackling what is serious, but what is also has levity. And, and to strike that balance is, uh, is a work of genius. How do you approach that? Or is it just, is it natural? Because you're a funny person. I think you're a funny person. I just think only you have to work at it. Like you either have it or you don't. But to write that, right, to write it in word form is a different task. So when, um, first of all, thank you for for your, your kind words again. I um, Writing is something I don't think about. It's one of the few things in life I do on automatic pilot. I don't know how I write. I don't know. I, I don't have a process. I just sit and write. And I write the same way that I talk. I'm the same person I am on stage as I am at Trader Joe's. And I'm the same person who write in the stories. People, when they meet me, they go, God, you're just like your work. And I go, yeah, I am truly a one trick pony. So I, I can't give any advice other than the fact that I grew up with a father who um, is very, very funny. But my father, more than being funny, is very kind. And so I sort of grew up seeing the humor, the gentle humor in life. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, there's so many different kinds of humor and I sort of put humor in quotes because there's a lot of things like I think humor at the expense of somebody is not funny. And right. so everything I do is very PG or probably even G rated. Um, but it's good though. I don't want, I don't want to lose listeners because thinking, oh God, it's PG, but I don't, you know, I don't use shock value. You know, I just, um, I point out the things the universal things in life that that are always there for everyone to see. Mm-hmm. And I think because I grew up with a father who pointed these things out to me, um, I, I just, you know, it's like if you grow up with a dad who's a great basketball player, you end up knowing how to shoot hoops, uh, which is something I don't know how to do. Um, so I give the credit to my father. Your family moved here in the early 70s. And I'm curious what drew them here? What, what was the immigrant impetus so, to come well, to America? We came in 1972 just for a two-year assignment. My father was an engineer with the National Iranian Oil Company. So we came to Whittier, California for a two-year assignment, and then we went back after two years. So it was just a, a limited a limited time here. 
we came here just long enough to like try every junk food multiple times and, you know, shop at Sears and then go back after two years. And then you came back. Two years later, he got an, an assignment to come back to work on the same project. So we were here when the revolution happened, but accidentally. So we weren't mm-hmm. one of these people who was like smart enough to like foresee what was coming and like move right. the assets abroad. Not that, not that my dad had any assets, but even what we had, you know, we left. So we were here accidentally and uh, it was very fortuitous for us. Sort of our story too. My father came here with my mother. He was finishing his PhD. The plan was to go back to Iran full time. They had me here, which was just sort of a, not coincidence, but it was just like, it wasn't planned. They had me here and the plan was to go back to Iran. The revolution happened and they were like, let's see if we can figure out a way to stay in the States. So much luck in that story. What's your relationship with luck in your life? Or have you thought about luck and its role, right? In your, in everything, in every, in every facet of your life. Okay. So this is literally an entirely other podcast because my entire life, my favorite word is serendipity. Mm -hmm. And my entire life is based, the best things in my life have been completely serendipitous. I always say, I think I'm the luckiest person I know, even though I've had devastating things happen in my life, but everybody does. But I'm also a weirdly lucky person. Very, very lucky. Like I just, I know things are going to work out and they do in the long run. They do not necessarily in my time frame or how I think they're going to work out, but they do. But the other part of it is, and I, and I think this is a really big part of luck is you have to also be there to be lucky for other people. Like you have to, I, th- I think you, if you put it out in the universe, it comes back. This is when we're getting to the woo-woo portion of this podcast. Yeah, no, because, well, let's dive a little bit into this because you're right. Because I think at least for me, the luck that I have really benefited from is because someone gave me a chance. Someone called me back. It was, it was, it was the people, the luck was in, it was the, the circumstance almost always involved somebody taking a chance on me. And I think that this is a very Iranian, Iruni, I think, perspective on life too. Um, one of our gifts, maybe my mother raised me with this faith, like to have faith. And what is faith really? It's like believing in luck oh. <laughs> at the end okay. of the day. I'm going to have to tell you two stories. Okay, please. So <laughs> I used to travel a lot on the lecture circuit. Unfortunately, COVID um, stopped that portion of my career, which I'm hoping is going to start again soon. But so I used to travel a lot. And <clears throat> as you know, uh, a lot of times, people in airports and airplanes are in bad moods. So I I used to always say, I'm going to be the, the person in the good mood. And so I, you know, like I remember I travel light and when sometimes there'd be people and there was no room like for their, their, over, their luggage in the overhead bin. And I would say, oh, you know what? I, there's a room under my seat, the seat in front of me. And the, the flight attendant would be like, do you know this person? I'm like, no, but there's, I'm only five, four and there's room. And so Every chance I ever got, like whenever I'd see a mother traveling with little kids, I'd always say, let me know if you want me to help you. You know, I have, I'm a mom myself. Sometimes people thought that was creepy, but a lot of times they took me up on it. And the truth is like, I just always tried to be the nicest person in the airplane. And I also travel with um, Trader Joe's chocolates, you know, the individually wrapped. And so I, I offer it to my seatmates. And so everyone's in a good mood around me because they've been offered chocolate. And even if they say no, it already puts them in a better mood. Okay, it's a little manipulative, but it's okay. Um, so I'll take the chocolate. I say, though, when I travel, I have the best travel luck. If there's one seat left that I need, I get it. 
if there's, I always make my connections, no matter how late my flight is. My mm. luggage does not get lost. I, it just, and I, I can't I, knock on wood right now, but I so wish I could. Knock on wood, knock on Watch me die in a plane crash. But no, it's, it's, I do have <laughs> really good luck. And I think as silly as it sounds, I think when you enter the airport and you're like, rah, 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 you know, you're bringing, and you're in a bad mood, you're going to attract people that are equally in a bad mood and you just spread that bad mood. And the opposite is true. If you try to actually be that one nice person um, on the flight or in the airplane, people react like they pick up on that energy and you would be surprised. Well, Stanford study says that empathy is contagious. Oh, 100%. 100%. I think that's part of it. He's like, you know, you want to pay it forward because you're so grateful for what what just happened to you. Well, and you know, the great thing is like with, with my career the past 20 years, I've had this really incredible opportunity to do nice things for people um, just because they like, they like my work as a writer. And I just like, um, when I hear someone's in the hospital and they're a fan of mine, I call them. I surprise mm-hmm. people. I call them. It, it takes 10 minutes out of my day and it really changes somebody else's mood. Mm-hmm. And as you know, we Iranian women, like the phone is our best friend. I mean, I can. <laughs> I just wrote about this today in my email. I said, you know, one of the things that I, I do is I call people on the phone. Remember the phone? Yeah. Oh, I dialing the before texting. I love the phone. And then, and the other thing is, you know, like um, I was on Facebook. So I got a message uh, on Facebook a couple of weeks ago from a 10 year old girl. And it was such an incredibly mature message. And I wow. thought, I wonder if she wrote this or her mom. And I noticed she lives in El Salvador. And I thought, what time is it in El Salvador? So I called her. And so I had this whole conversation with this 10 year old girl named Delora, who was like, the most so sweet, like precocious ten year old. I have always met. remember this. Well, and me it's too. Me too. It's a memory. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And you will always. too. So I think whatever you do in your life, whatever your job is, look for those opportunities to be surprisingly kind. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. man, it, you are. You will be a happier person for it. You end up actually getting the reward, not the person for whom you're doing something to. Mm-hmm. And then I have to tell you. Um, I do have such weird, weird luck. I mean, coincidence, serendipity. I just want to share a somewhat quick story. Um, I'm recently divorced and uh, I was my youngest um, at the time we're going through this was 15 and she's now 17, but uh, it was, it it was an ugly, ugly divorce. And I, um, I felt so horrible that this child had just seen me sob for almost a year. So I wanted to do something really special. And um, there was a play, she, there was a, a ballet she wanted to see in London. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not wealthy, um, but this is where, you know, I realized I needed to do this. Like this was a splurge I needed to make because I, I wanted to go and see this ballet with my daughter in London. And I knew she'd never forget that. And I knew I'd never forget it. So we went to London for three nights. And one of the things I wanted to do when I was there was to take her to the Yayoi Kusama exhibit at the Tate Modern. And Kusama is an artist. She's a Japanese artist. She's 93 years old. She's the hottest artist in the world right now. And she has a really incredible story. She um, she was treated horribly her whole life as an artist. She's a Japanese woman. But I, but I mean, I'm telling you, this woman triumphed. Anyways, I wanted to take my daughter to this exhibit. And Kusama makes these immersive rooms that you walk in and they have mirrors and lights. So anyways, we go to London, we go to the Tate Modern. It turns out that exhibit is sold out for seven months. 
And I was so devastated because I had my heart set on having this experience with my daughter of having this bond with her. So I kept asking different employees. I'm like, is there anything I can do? Like, are there cancellations? Can I join the museum? Like, what can I do? And everyone said, no, there's nothing, nothing, nothing. So I was really heartbroken. And um, finally, after like an hour of trying, um, we left the museum, went out the wrong door. And we end up on the street in London. And all of a sudden, I see someone I know from my hometown. And it's, yeah, and it's one of my middle daughter's friends that she'd grown up with. And so it was like a mirage. And I said, I called her name and she called my name. And I said, what are you doing here? And she said, I'm just passing through London for a couple of days. So I said, well, let's take a picture together and send it to your mom. So we take a picture. I texted to her mom, who's never around. She's always traveling. I texted the mom and I said, look who I just ran into in London. That was it. Well, it turns out the mom had COVID. And so she was at home. So she responded to my text and she said, what are you doing in London? And now I have never learned the fine art of texting. I still text in like paragraphs with punctuation. So I'm explaining to her the whole thing and mention the Kusama exhibit. I can't get in. And um, so anyways, so then we go to pack our bags because we're leaving the next morning. And before we did, I went to the concierge and I was like, hey, is there any way I can get into the Kusama if you know what I mean? And the guy's like, no, that's the hottest ticket in town. So I start packing my, my bags and my phone pings about 10 minutes later. And um, the, the friends, the mom that I'd sent the photo to, she said to me, I know someone who knows someone who knows someone. I just got you guys into the Kusama exhibit. Okay. I, my jaw stayed open for 10 minutes. I didn't even say anything to my daughter for like 10 minutes. I just stood there. And then I said to her, I said, you're not going to believe this. We just got tickets to the Kusama exhibit. So the next morning before going to the airport, we went and saw the exhibit and it was everything I had dreamt it was going to be. And when I was standing in that room with my daughter in the infinity room with all the mirrors and all the lights, I just thought there is a God, there is something like this was, this was, I mean, I I don't, I don't even have words. And I think it also is telling me that the world is is beautifully small in that way. Well, like, what is that story telling you other than just life is serendipitous? Well, uh, to quote my 98-year-old father, um, I grew up with a father who used to tell me that there's a world that we see with our eyes and there's a world that we don't see with our eyes. And they're both just as real. Oh, wow. And I I can tell you, I turned 58 in, in, in two weeks. Um, I 100% believe that. And I could literally write an entire book on coincidences and things that um, that are just unbelievable. And, you know, like just to give you a really recent example, I've been trying to buy a condo because um, like all divorced women, well, I shouldn't say all divorced women, like most divorced women, I needed a place, I need a place to live. And I, and I want a place that's mine and I can't afford to live in the town that I'm currently in. So I was looking in other places and I, and I keep getting outbid and, um, and it's been it's been really hard, but I but I have this faith of like there's a house with my name on it and and I'll mm-hmm. find it. And so um a couple of weeks ago, my realtor called and and said, you know, um, there's this condo, it's not for sale yet, but I think you should make an offer. But the price was too high. And um and I couldn't, I mean, it was too scary for me to spend that much of my money because I'm a writer, you know, I don't I'm not in high tech, I don't have stocks. Like so for me, like what I have is what I have. Uh, so that night I dreamt my mother passed away on Easter Sunday and, and, and I dreamt of her and she took me by the hand. We went somewhere together. I didn't remember all the details, but when I woke up, I had this incredible surge of courage 
So I called the realtor and I said, I'm going to make an offer on, on this condo. And I did, and I got it. Oh my God. And it was literally because of a, of a dream I had with my mom. So that is so, so special. Well, going back to your childhood, your memories of your mother and your father, and this is a financial show. And you just talked about, you brought up real estate. I didn't. I mean, that is so Iranian. Like you oh, just oh, had oh. to bring up real estate. But Firza, what did you learn about money growing up? What were the conversations oh. like? Oh my God. Okay. So my dad gave me more <laughs> bad advice about money than anybody could ever. Um, the man was like a font of bad advice. And <laughs> I remember when we, we, we moved from Whittier, California to Newport Beach, California, when I was in sixth grade, and we were renting a house and the owner was an older lady and she wanted to sell the house. And so she came to my father and she, she said, look, I don't want to be a landlady anymore. I'm too old for this. I want to sell you my house and I'm going to give it to you at a really low price. And my dad said, no. So then she came back and she said, look, I'm going to deduct a year's worth of rent. Okay. But I really want to offload this house. And my dad was like, huh, what do you think I am? A sucker? No. So I said to my dad as a 12 year old, I said, dad, why don't you want to buy this house? Cause I thought it would be a good idea. And this, and this is the nugget that my, my father shared with me. He said, Firuze, when you own a house and something goes wrong, you have to fix it yourself. When you rent, it's someone else's problem. And I thought, well, that's, that's genius. That's genius. Mm -hmm. Why buy when you can rent? That's what I learned from my dad. So the irony, of course, is that he lived to completely regret that decision because that house then went up in value, like, I don't know, a thousand percent. Right, right. <laughs> and um, so it's, it sort of became a story that he, that he loved to tell of like, oh, the condo I didn't, you know, the house I didn't buy in Newport Beach. And um, so, and then my dad had this really terrible habit that I learned from him, which was um, when he had money, my father would very generously loan, and by loan, I mean in quotes, to family and friends. Huge mistake. You should not do that. You should make sure that you have enough for yourself first. And if you do loan money, you need to do what my friend Denise does, which you have people actually write a contract and they pay you interest and there's nothing wrong with it, but it just makes it so that it's clear, like there's no vagueness. Right. And um, that's that's the thing, like, you know, we have these families and we love them so much and we would do anything for them. But sometimes it's not such a good idea, like loan, quote, loan, you know, people money that you love, because you have to be very clear on whether it's a loan or if you're going to want to get it back and the time frame and what happens. And so, and that can end a lot of relationships. Oh yeah. It's why I usually say don't lend unless you're already convinced it's a gift. Right. If right. It's not unless a loan unless there's a contract with it. And right. even then there's a good chance. Well, you know, it's interesting. My friend Denise made a lot of money um, in high tech. And so all of a sudden she was a, you know, a wealthy woman and she has a big enough heart that she did want to help people, but she didn't want to become an ATM, which is very smart. Yeah. So she lends it with a contract. And I learned that from her. I, I don't have enough to lend anybody, <laughs> but if I did, there would be a contract involved and it would, it would benefit both sides. Hmm. Well, so now going a little bit back to your book, Funny and Farsi, and I remember reading it and the the feeling I got was that, well, you talked about it. You assimilated a lot growing. You you intentionally assimilated a lot as a child. It was kind of your survival mechanism and I related to that. When did that change for you? This, you know, I feel like for all of us, there's an arc as immigrants. Like we come here and we sort of you know, we feel like we want to Americanize really quickly because that's the way that we're going to be accepted. We have a fear of rejection. 
And then something maybe shifts in your life where you're like, oh, wait a minute, being Iranian is super duper cool, <laughs> not just within the Iranian community, but even outside right. the Iranian community. When was that recognition for you? And where would you say you are now in kind of like living in these two, like you say, you're very fully Iranian and fully American, but have you maybe maybe shifted to one side or the other as you have gotten older? Oh, yeah, I definitely. Well, I, I, I pick and choose the parts that work to my benefit. So, um, <laughs> so as a divorced woman, I, I'm not going by anything I learned in my Iranian culture because oh. that, none of that is good. I go by, you know, what I, um, what I learn in the Western culture, which is, you know, you go girl. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. It. Power, power. Yeah. That, that, you know, the second, la- the second half of life is where all the gifts are. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. that it's true. It, it, if you believe it, it actually is true. Um, so when I came to America in 1972, there were no Iranians, um, anywhere near us. We ran into an Iranian one time in the two years that we lived in America. And we were of course at a mall because like, where do you see Iranians at the mall? It's like animals are in the zoo. Iranians are in the mall. (laughs) So we ran into these Iranians and we, and we actually heard people speaking Persian and, and we went up to them and we said, like, are you Iranian? I mean, it was like two polar bears running into each other in Hawaii. It was just shock. And it turned out they were actually just traveling through California. They didn't live here. Uh, but we nonetheless invited them to our house for um, for a meal. And um, I remember telling my mom, like, we need to get Kentucky Fried Chicken because I'm thinking, you know, they're, and my mother was like, nah, she was, nah, nah. She, like, she made them, of course, a Persian feast. And uh, so, so, for me, assimilating wasn't even an option. Not assimilating was not an option. There were no Iranians mm-hmm. anywhere. And then um, once the once you know the revolution happened and Iranians did start coming to America, by then I was so fully you know assimilated that Iranians seemed foreign to me. These Iranians that were coming seemed foreign to me. Yeah. And then when I went to college, I, I attended college at UC Berkeley. Um, that's when I thought, you know, I I'm definitely going to start figuring out what parts of my Iranian-ness I really, really like and I, I want to keep because it just wasn't even an option before. The survival mm-hmm. me- mechanism was to fully assimilate. Mm-hmm. And now the part, there's a lot I love about the Iranian culture. I mean, I love the Tell warmth. me, tell me what you oh love most. Oh, what I love, the, I think the warmth, the, mm-hmm. the warmth, you know. Hospitality. I, I lived yeah. in Germany for six years and I remember thinking, wow, um, it's, I mean, I love Germany for many reasons as well. Um, but I kept thinking this is like the opposite of Iran, you know, Germany and Iran, like polar opposites when it comes to how warm strangers are to one another. And, um, I love the hospitality and I love the fact that, you know, Iranians are very fuzul, okay. Which is nosy. Nosy. positive side to that too, because like, we want to know your story. Yes. It's for gossip reasons. Okay. But we still want to know your story. And I like that. I like that people ask questions. Well, I mean, that's why I'm a journalist. Okay. Perhaps. It's basically very very fuzuli with a salary. So you, you go girl, you go girl. I I have made a career out of my fuzuli. Go. Yeah. I mean, we, we should just leverage our strengths. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And you know, for me, like being a storyteller, talking about myself endlessly, because all my stories are about myself. It is an extension of like the Mehmuni where we just endlessly talking. I just get mine published in the New York times or, or in books. That's the only difference. But basically my conversation, what you're reading is what I was saying in some Mehmuni somewhere. 
So um, if you invite well, me to Mahmoudi, you're saving yourself time and money. One, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I think you may have discussed this on another podcast with Leila Shams, who's a brilliant creator of uh, Chai in Conversation. And I think the two of you were talking about sort of this almost like, I don't know if it's like tension or like, the, okay, so I'll give you an example. Um, and I think, because I think this is universal within religions and cultures, there is like a lot of judgment going on. Like I had a professor in grad school who wrote a book called Jew versus Jew. And it was this uh, sort of look at Judy, Jew, Jewish people, people of the Jewish faith, but all of the ways that they might be polarized within the community. And within the Iranian community, I felt growing up and still, especially now with so much happening politically overseas in Iran and the revolution. For me, at least, I've gotten emails from like random people that are like, you're not being Iruni enough. You're not being loud enough as an Iranian. You should have Iranian in the first sentence of your of your bio. And it's like they're judging me because I'm not as Iranian as they wish I was out loud. And that always... Um, I mean, it hurt when I would I get these emails. I'm like, oh, am I not being, I don't know, am I being disrespectful? Like, I'm sorry. But I feel like it's for them, it's like displaced anger. Have you ever experienced this? I'm sure you have, as you have had this globally celebrated book, but also probably some people who are like, I don't know, that were sort of the haters. Okay. Like this is a whole nother podcast. Okay. Yeah. We've had like four <laughs> podcasts in one. I mean- it is. It really is. It's called Surviving fame within the Iranian community. That is a whole nother podcast. And by fame, I mean, I'm not that famous, but I mean, even just being known publicly a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, No, the haters are like coming out of the woodwork all the time. And I was shocked because when I wrote Funny and Farsi, I just thought there's nothing in this book that anybody can possibly be offended by. But it turns out that my existence can be offending. This was news to me because people, I mean, I would get emails and they say, why are you wasting your time with stupid stories that aren't even funny? You should be talking about politics. Why are you not writing about human rights? Why are you? And I'm like, why don't you write about human rights? Why don't you talk about politics? And you know what it is? I'm going to just be really mean for a moment, but I think these, these trolls deserve it. These are people who have done nothing with their lives. And how easy is it to sit behind your computer screen and just criticize those who have the courage to put themselves and their work out there? Yeah. So to all the haters out there, just go get a hobby and do something and contribute. Yeah. And then you will no longer actually feel the way you're feeling. Like you will actually be like you're a part of the conversation. Because I think part of it is this jealousy that they're not part of the conversation. It's like that Instagram post I got in my feed because the algorithm knows me so well. It was like <laughs> regarding haters, like these aren't people that are on the field playing. They're the ones who bought the tickets to watch you play. And they think that you're some sort of spectator sport for them. I'm sorry, but no, I'm I'm feeding a family. I'm making an impact. I'm putting myself out there. I'm failing forward. You know what? And you bought a ticket. You bought a front row to this. Uh, that says something. You know, I must yeah, be doing yeah. something right. <laughs> I mean, I used to be really, really devastated um, from the criticism because I just, you know, this, first of all, I'm a pioneer in criticism as an Iranian because this is 20 years ago when this book came out. Right. Like, I was totally unprepared. Like, nowadays, people talk about this. They talk about trolls. There's a word for it. But like, well, I was getting, because em- my email used to be public. I was just getting emails from people and I was like shocked. Like, I would just yeah. want to go lie down for the whole day. It was so upsetting to me. Um, and so, but now, I mean, you you do sort of, you just kind of say, God bless you. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, as we wrap, Firuza, my gosh, this I had all these questions. I think I got to like three of them, but yes. this is that's always a sign of a great conversation when you have not even looked at your prep notes. Um, but as you are now in your next chapter in your life yes. as a go girl, independent woman, how do you want your luck to show up for you in these coming years? Well, my luck does. It's. It, I mean. It just, it does keep showing up. I don't even, I just, there's something great around the corner on a regular basis. I just, what I just try to do is to contribute to that same river of good karma. So Mm -hmm. I'm not just taking from it, but also contributing from it. So I look for opportunities to contribute. Well, we are, I'll be watching in the front row cheering you on. (laughs) um, uh, And I will pay lots of money for that ticket. Thank you so much. For coming on so money, I'm um, truly. This is for me. Like I will, I can already say I've been doing this podcast for nine years. I, I am so glad we finally made this happen. Better late than never, and I, I so appreciate you and your work. And you're just as incredible in person as I thought you would be. Mm-hmm. Thank you for not letting me down in that way, because that you know <laughs> that, that that can happen sometimes. You put all your like hopes and dreams in meeting someone who's like your hero from afar, and then they really disappoint you. But <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Firuze. Thank you. Thanks so much to Firuze for joining us. I'll see you back here on Wednesday. In the meantime, if you want to pick up a copy of A Healthy State of Panic, pre-order it. You will get access to my program called Scared Smart. It's a three-video series plus the workbook plus the introduction to A Healthy State of Panic to help you get a head start on some of the advice in the book on how to better relate to your financial fears and actually use your financial fears to make great money decisions. Go to healthystateofpanic.com for all of that. I hope your day is so money. Money.